when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with historical fantasy author Olivia Atwater. Let's find out about her writing process and her Regency fairy tale series, beginning with Half a Soul. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville Madison County Public Library. Hi, I'm Olivia Atwater. I wrote the Regency fairy tales, starting with Half Soul. Can you introduce our listeners to your uh, Regency fairy tale series, uh, Half a Soul, 10,000 Stitches, and Long Shadow? Uh, yeah. So I started the Regency fairy tales with Half a Soul, obviously, and it was uh, it was not the first book that I've ever written, though it is the, the first book that I published under this name. And it was the book where, actually, I, I wasn't expecting it to be so popular <laughs> because I basically sat down and I, I wrote a book where I said, I'm just going to throw in everything that I personally like. And that ended up with a bizarre pastiche of, you know, Regency era, bits of historical details, fairies, historical magic, things like that. And apparently there are other people out there who do like those things. And so it when it kind of took off unexpectedly, I went, uh, oh, so I can write more of this. Excellent. <laughs> thus the uh, the other two Regency fairy tales were born. It really was a joy to read those, the all books. Um, our fiction selector, Rachel, is the first one who, I think she found Half a Soul on like a, a romance blog. And so she read it first and she told several other library staff. And so I think there's, there's a good group of us at uh, the Bay County Public Library who have all started with half soul and then we promptly had to read all the other ones <laughs> and then we just share it with everyone else and then and i definitely got several christmas presents so that way as well you know and get, get them started and then they, they buy the next <laughs> one in the series the pacing of your titles is really calming it's it was very i i think i fell asleep with a lot of ballroom dances which was very <laughs> needed <laughs> when i discovered the books um and much appreciated and um curious on how you both developed your world building for the series. And then will you be writing any more in this one or on to other things? So I have a rule. Um I for context, I once tried to write a fantasy novel for 10 years <laughs> because like many beginning authors, I tried to world build first. Mm -hmm. And I had journals and journals of world building for this setting and i just kept world building and i i i never really got around to finishing the book and so finally i i said to myself i'm just gonna write the book first and then i will world build as i go and only put in details that are directly relevant to the story and that worked out very well for me. Um, I finally finished several books that way. But it was actually far easier to world build for Half a Soul in many respects because I basically just assumed that all of the fairy tales and historical magic were true. And I, I just went with that. Uh, obviously, I selected which fairy tales and which which historical bits of magic were true. But uh, I basically approached it uh, such that I, I, I said, like, if it's in the history book somewhere or if it's in a fairy tale somewhere, I'll just I'll just go with it. Uh, so actually, a lot of the magic in Half a Soul is based on either ceremonial magic or folk magic that you could find in Britain somewhere in its history. I, I did try to restrict myself to magic that was obviously Regency era or before, but uh, it, it is, uh, it's all somewhere. Someone believed it at some point. Yeah, I, I recognize some of the magic for, for fairy folk from the traditional folklore, such as being repelled by iron, which is kind of very consistent throughout uh, the stories. I'm going to preface this question by saying that Sarah has made a very large mistake in allowing me the liberty to, to go down this rabbit hole because <laughs> I am a gamer. 
I love <gasps> RPGs. Fantastic. I love LARPs. So I have all kinds of questions I'm going to go down to, and she doesn't realize the, the, the can of worms she has opened. <laughs> I, I do realize. <laughs> I, I just want you to know, if you don't know this, I am a habitual game master, and I run LARPs, so we will have a lot to talk about. So to start off with this, how has writing for RPGs, like building games and game mastering kind of things and LARPs guided your writing? So many ways. So I counted up at one point, just LARPs, just LARPs, live action role playing. I counted up how many words I have written of material for live action role playing games over the course of my life. And it's easily cracks a million words. And that includes character backgrounds that includes uh storyteller materials because i write everything down i i'm of the opinion that you know if it if it's not written down it doesn't exist so you want to give your storytellers uh because i run teams of storytellers and so i give them as much to work with as possible so that if they ever have a question i just go oh it's on page 46 you know and this really affected how i think about timelining and, and world building as well, you know, in the sense of, uh, yes, when I'm sitting down to write a story, I'm, I'm trying only to include the world building that might come up, but it is, uh, it's still written down somewhere. <laughs> I would say the other thing, actually, that, that running live action games has really helped me with is writing every character as though they are the main character. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I'm running a live action game, I try to say to myself, you know, why would I want to play this character? And so I want to write a game such that nobody feels like they are extraneous. They they all want to feel, you know, tied into the plot. They all want to feel like they have their own stakes and their own personal plots and such. So that's really leaked into my writing uh, in that even if the side characters plots are not happening on screen, I know what their plots are, and I know what the story looks like from their perspective, and why things are important to them, and what their motivations are, and so on. And I, I guess from that, the opposite side of that, how has, you know, doing the straight full control affected your writing for those kind of systems? It's so much easier to write a novel than it is to write a game. I have to say that because I get to control the characters and I get to, you know, I, I don't have to wonder, oh gosh, but what if they hair off on some tangent? I, actually, there's a long story that I won't go into, but within my live action groups, we have something that I call a Siberia moment, which is something actually happened in a game where a player made a brilliant decision, brilliant decision that effectively sent our plot to Siberia. And all of the GMs I want you to envision, we're all in a little corner of this hotel ballroom and, and having an emergency meeting and we're going, what do we do? Our plot is literally in Siberia. <laughs> what are we going to do? And we had to brainstorm how this would affect the plot and how we still could make it fun without negating that player decision because it was a brilliant decision. I was standing there aghast, just like, wow, why wouldn't you do that? That's an amazing idea. <laughs> And so I don't have to deal with Siberias in my novel writing, though I will say occasionally I will have an outline and one of my, I'll get to a certain point and I'll go, wow, you know, there's a much smarter way for the character to approach this. And now I've Siberiaed myself sometimes, but it, it's something that's, that's far more um, workable when you do it to yourself. <laughs> Oh, and I, I almost forgot. I, I want to answer uh, the question that uh, previously, because there were two questions before. I will be writing more fairy tales. The next fairy tales on my list are Victorian fairy tales, which will be a little bit more gothic, but they will still be very whimsical and, and in the same overall style. I like playing with genre, and so I do want them to feel Victorian. And so they, they they will have a slight difference in tone, but but not too much. And speaking of having a specific time period, how do you do your research, like the historical research of your works? So I'm actually far more familiar with the Tudor period. Mm. I did historical reenactment for a while 
And so I, I know an awful lot of random trivia about both the nobility and the yeomen and the peasantry in Tudor England under specifically Henry VIII. And when I wrote Half a Soul, I basically went to a lot of the same people that I knew who happened to also have some expertise in, in the Regency era. It's great. Historical reenactment, it's fantastic because you have all of these PhDs who are just dying to tell you their favorite random fact about the era. And so you can just hit them up and be like, hey, I'm, I'm working on something in the Regency era. Tell me something nobody else knows. That would be and, so fun. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. I really enjoy it. And then, so once I established those resources, and I have somebody who did their thesis on Regency-era customs and manners, who is my historical nitpicker, uh, and he's amazing, I, I gotta say, because I go to my books, I hit the books, and I'll, I'll, and the blogs, and the articles, and so on, uh, to answer a question. And I once spent two days trying to answer a single question, and I was like, where is the answer to this question? It was something in 10,000 Stitches. And I believe it was actually, um, what would a, um, a Regency era made, country made, wear to bed? It's amazing how hard it can be to find answers specifically uh, about the lower classes. We have all kinds of records on the upper classes, but as soon as you start digging into the lower classes, it's much harder. So I spent two days trying to find the answer to this. And then finally, I just hit up my historical nitpicker and I, sa I said, hey, I can't find this answer anywhere. And within five seconds, he said, oh, I already know that. That's a, a she'd be wearing a dressing dressing gown at night. And it would be, well, you said that the employer is a little bit stingy, but they still would be obliged to provide a dressing gown at least. But she would only have one. It probably wouldn't be replaced very often. It'd be a little bit threadbare. And, and he just went, you know, it's amazing. He just went on and on. It was, it was great. So uh, over the course of writing these books and interacting with my nitpicker and, and reading everything I can get my hands on. I've learned more about Regency England, but I always had at least a sense of where it fell in the progression of, of British history, because obviously a lot of history is ongoing. And so there are trends happening and developments that will have an impact for several decades, you know, to come. And so one of the things obviously that is happening in the Regency era that I basically just had to be like, where is this at at this point? That's enclosure. And um, enclosure took place over really several centuries. And, and of, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, enclosure is the, uh, the development of closing in what once was the commons in Britain. Uh, and there were these common public resources that were slowly being fenced off and owned by people. And obviously this the the development of this and, and as this progressed, it really impacted the lower classes and caused them a lot of grief. And this contributed to the workhouses, which which get mentioned in Half a Soul. And it's funny because a lot of people seem to think that the workhouses are Victorian, that they just popped up in the Victorian era from nothing. And that's not true at all. Uh, the workhouses were, I want to say they, uh, I, I don't have my notes in front of me, but they started somewhere in the 1600s. Um, and and there are, those are only the references we have. There were probably something very much like them before that, before they are historically written down. And they were always awful, always. They just, they just, and in the Regency era is right about when they start getting really, really bad. It's before a particular act came into being that really put the screws on, but all of the contributing factors that led to that act were all in place in the Regency era. And Dickens lived next to a workhouse during the Regency era. And a lot of the stuff that made its way into Oliver Twist was actually something that we can theorize he would have seen while living next to that workhouse in the Regency era. Very cool. I'm looking forward to Victorian now. There's lots of fun things you can put in there. <laughs> oh yes, I I already have all of my uh, all of my Victorian friends lined up. I'm very excited. <laughs> so as we kind of discussed, you've done some some writing for games. So you, you've also done some technical writing. You've also done computer writing. Obviously, when you're doing those type of writings, it's you try to do 
as little as possible to, to kind of make it as condensed as possible. Um, mm -hmm. How does that affect your writing and editing process? It's so funny. You should bring this up because I just finished another, I, I write very tiny reference books for authors as well. So I wrote a, a book on blurbs and how to, how to write a short but punchy blurb or book description for your book. And I just finished writing another one that I call reader-friendly writing for authors. It is literally in the process of being published right now. And it's all about applying technical writing techniques to fiction writing. And I, I think that's very, it hugely influences my writing because I am of the opinion and I am probably on the extreme end of this. I, I know I am. I'm of the opinion that clarity should always be your primary concern in genre writing. Now, literary fiction is a different matter, obviously, because you're writing to a different audience there. But genre writing is all about entertaining people and making sure that your readers are going to be more distracted. They might be, you know, watching a movie at the same time. They might be reading a chapter or two on public transit and then going to work and then picking it back up. And I feel like genre writing really needs to be about catering to people who are distracted or not reading it all in one go or things like that. And so a lot of the techniques of technical writing can be applied to that. Not all of them, but but many of them. And I think that it's very important if you are aiming for clarity in writing to have a good command of English grammar. And I don't say this as a, you know, if you're writing on social media, obviously, as long as you're understood, you shouldn't be nitpicking spelling and grammar. But if you are an author and you are trying to make your prose as clear as possible and make sure people aren't getting lost, I, I think it is incumbent on you to learn technical grammar so that you are not leaving ambiguities in your writing. And so that especially because neurodivergent readers will get especially lost if uh, if you have things out of place you can't fix everything for them especially you know dyslexic readers you can't fix everything for them but you can make things easier on them if you have your writing in order in the right in, in the right way well even as a reader i appreciate it i don't have to go back going what was that again <laughs> oh yeah no and and one of the things that i often say to other authors is you know, even readers that don't have specific difficulties all have their bad days. Because if mm -hmm. you're sick and you're kind of fuzzy, you're on the NyQuil, you're in bed and you're, you're just trying to read to distract yourself, it can get a little frustrating when you you have to reread a sentence three times to try and figure out what's going on. Every, everybody has their bad days as a genre reader. And I prefer to assume that all of my readers are having a bad day, basically, so that I, and I, I do, I get complaints about it sometimes because some readers will be like, I didn't need you to tell me that. I feel a little talked down to. And my answer to that is it wasn't for you. I did that so that the reader who's sick right now or the, or the reader who's ADHD doesn't get distracted or confused or lost. And if you don't need that, that's great. That is, but it's, it wasn't for you. My absolute favorite of your characters is Dora. I was so happy to see her return in Long Shadow, um, even in a different role for that. There's something about her character that I can relate to and even feel as like she's a kindred spirit, even though she only has half a soul. I don't know if it's maybe she's who I wish I could be, you know, like a little bit more direct or matter of fact in her way of speaking. But um, can you share a little bit about her character? Yes. So Dora, as evidenced by the title, Dora, as a young girl, gets half of her soul stolen by a fairy. And he meant to take the whole thing, but he got a little interrupted. And so he only ended up taking half. And the way that this has primarily manifested with her is that her emotions are dulled, mostly her, her immediate emotions, her impulsive kind of emotions. She still has 
deeper, long-term emotions, which she calls emotions with a long tail. She can still have impressions and feelings and opinions about things, but it takes longer for them to build up. And Dora, she's a fun story for me as well, because I wrote her based on a combination of things about me and and a few other things about some of my autistic friends. Uh, and, and also the, the half a soul reference is actually there, there are folklore references to people getting stolen by fairies or being being touched by fairies and then acting strangely afterward. And, and there's some uh, there's some you know question about whether that was really just a folklore explanation for people with autism or, or who were neurodivergent. Uh, and so I kind of leaned into that. And in the process of writing Dora, all of my autistic friends came back to me and said, oh, she's just like me, you know, this, this and that. And some of the things they pointed out, they said, oh, this, you know, this is very autistic. And I went, oh. <laughs> and so by writing Dora with much of myself in her, I basically found out I'm autistic, <laughs> which was uh, an experience, you know, a, a bit of a relief because I, I've always been very different. And so having a, you know, always having a word to put to it is is very helpful. Very cool. Yeah, she's my favorite character. I just adore her. Oh, that says wonderful things about me then. Yeah. <laughs> That's encouraging. <laughs> kind of going off from, from that standpoint, you had a quote where you're talking about uh, Terry Pratchett and how he was able to ask some controversial questions and, and approach them with humor and whimsy. So kind of going in that direction, what extent do you think that fiction can improve human life? You know, this is a question I ask myself very often because, funny enough, while I've always wanted to be a writer and I've always wanted to publish something and now I've got my wish, I never felt like I was doing anything important by writing because uh, I was always like, man, you know, doctors save lives and, you know, there's you know, engineers build stuff and, and, and such like that. But over the years, I have I have come to appreciate that writing is also necessary. I don't know that I would say it's as necessary as a doctor. I'm not going to I'm not going to put it on that pedestal. But, you know, it's really important for us to chew on our priorities, our beliefs as a society, what, you know, our morality. It, it does matter. And I find that. Uh, also, you know, sometimes I'm working out difficult questions for myself when I write. I'm, I'm asking questions that I, I may not have a perfect answer to yet. And by writing the book, I find something that seems like it, it fits at least a little bit for me. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. It does. But I think primarily the advantage of fantasy is that it puts extra distance between the reader and the ideas such that the reader can remove themselves a little bit more and feel less attacked when you are discussing something that maybe they feel strongly about. And it, it gives you a chance to frame it to them in terms that they can digest a little bit better. And especially with whimsical fantasy, it definitely doesn't feel like an attack because you're, you're, you're adding you know, chocolate and sugar on top of it, which is something that Terry Pratchett did fantastically. And, and he will always be kind of my idol of an author because he was just such, he was so good at framing things simply, straightforwardly, by, you know, shouldn't have been able to be framed that way. <laughs> he He just had such a way of breaking things down to common sense explanations and i so admire him for that especially obviously everybody uh, I, I think m most people now if they have heard of him will have heard of him because of the the vimes uh, boots theory of uh, socioeconomics which is the the perfect example of him breaking down a seemingly complicated idea and making it understandable for your average reader 
And I just, I think that's brilliant. I think it takes more craft and more genius to be able to explain something simply than it does to write a beautiful, waxing, poetic, literary fiction work that approaches the same idea. I think, I think it takes a lot of work to make things accessible. And bouncing back to Terry Pratchett, um, you're, you have another novella, uh, well, I, it would be more in line with th these titles as well in length, but um, Small Miracles pays a little bit of homage to Terry Pratchett. Could you explain or introduce our, our audience to that one? Uh, yeah, so Small Miracles is a, uh, like you said, a short book. Uh, I do think technically is a novel. It's around the same length as these. And it follows uh, Gadriel, the fallen angel of petty temptations. And Gadriel is just, he's, they are tasked with tempting a mortal to sin just a little bit. Because this, this mortal, Holly Harker, is just so so sinless uh, that even even one of the guardian angels uh, is kind of like, you know, I think she really could use a little more fun. It, it's, it's gotten a little extreme at this point. And so Gadriel goes to try and get Holly to, you know, eat a piece of chocolate or, I don't know, steal a flower or something, you know, it's something small. And Gadriel very quickly realizes that it's not nearly as easy a job as they assumed it was going to be because uh, Holly is very difficult to tempt for reasons that the book goes into. So this book was, it started as a, a bit of an homage to Good Omens, but I specifically wanted to make it very small and intimate in scale because Good Omens, as much as I loved Good Omens, it, it gets very apocalyptic very quickly. <laughs> you know, it's quite, quite literally starts with, and the end of the world is coming. And I, I was like, you know, but there's so much to explore in the little things. And I would love to, I also kind of wanted to explore a setting where it wasn't assumed that the Judeo-Christian faiths were the only ones, uh, because there's a, a lot more interesting material to mine in, in other pantheons. I didn't want to necessarily make those other pantheons the central focus of the book, but I wanted to acknowledge that they were there, they had an impact, and other people's beliefs were supernaturally represented as well. And I, I thought the interactions between those, you know, those different faiths was also fun because it, you know, how how do, you know, guardian angels interact with the Chinese celestial bureaucracy? And asking those questions leads to some really fun answers. I kind of want to go back to something you, you mentioned just a moment ago about tying real world things, making them more lighthearted with fantasy. So kind of making it more lighthearted with this question, how much difference is there between writing uh, writing fantasy in a non-traditional setting? In a non-traditional, sorry, can you clarify? Like a, you know, when, when people think of romance style writing, their, their first thing isn't to think of it in a fantasy style setting. So how much difference goes into kind of tailoring romance to fit in those types of settings? Well, it's interesting because um, what people, I guess, I've heard it referred to as fantasy romance, romantic fantasy, and most lately, romanticy. It is having a moment. There, fantasy romance has definitely become more popular recently. It was always there, but it's it's exploded a little bit at the moment. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that we're going through a lot of, of real-world upheaval. And, and so people are a little bit more attracted to something cozier and more fantastic. But as far as tailoring romance to fantasy, there are some difficulties there, which I have experienced. And that is that when you are writing genre fiction, meeting reader expectations is very important. And I don't mean you have to always tailor everything to reader expectations. I, I do think that diverging from reader expectations you know, just a little bit by inches in certain areas is is actually quite good, but the rest of the book has to meet reader expectations so that those diversions stand out more. And at the end of the day, fantasy readers do have different genre expectations than romance readers do. And so 
it can be difficult at times to balance those. And I think I probably, I feel like I, I did as well as I could have with Half a Soul, but there are still going to be readers who are fantasy readers who go, what is all of this social etiquette about? I, I'm just not interested in that. Uh, give me more fairies. And then there are going to be, you know, readers on the flip side who are like, I'm not interested in fairyland. Can we get back to the Regency balls? So, yeah, it's when you're mixing genres, it can be difficult to meet all of your readers' expectations to the degree that they might want you to. But as long as you're making sure you're meeting most of their expectations on both sides, I think I think you can kind of work it out. For me, it was the perfect blend. I loved it. Love, love, loved it. Well, I feel like people who enjoy fantasy and romances uh -huh. probably will be able to find everything that they want in there. But people who, who far prefer one to the other will, will probably feel it's unbalanced. And the series is marketed to a young adult audience. Uh, did you go into writing with young adults in mind or was that kind of post writing the books and then it kind of fits that niche? I have written several paranormal romances, actually, which uh, I will not speak of here, but they uh, so I'm actually not I am not a prudish author, let us say. But I started writing Half a Soul um, with kind of the vague idea that it might be another paranormal romance. But then as I was writing it, I, I realized it's just not that tone. And so I discovered that it was focusing a lot more on, you know, social issues and things like that, which which naturally came to my mind when I was writing Regency because I enjoy social history. Uh, which is, you know, kind of the the history of social movements and economic movements and things like that. And so obviously, while I did have some of the classic Regency tropes in there of, you know, their balls and people trying to get married and things like that, a lot of my mind was was half on what else was going on at the time and, you know, the T Napoleonic War and the, the effects that that had on the economy and, and people who couldn't get work or who were tossed off their lands or whatever. Um, and so that naturally kind of started uh, working its way into the narrative. And at that point, I realized this is not a paranormal romance. This is a book about history to some extent. And it, the tone just, just became that way. And I also think that young adult, I know that the young adult genre has come to be associated with certain tropes such as, you know, love triangles and, th and things like that. And I don't think that's what the young adult genre is, though. To me, the young adult genre is and always has been about the inflection point where you are turning into what society would consider to be an adult. And I think it's very important in young adult fiction to be asking the sorts of questions that young adults are going to run into. And one of those questions to me is, what have the adults in my life gotten wrong? That's super important to me. And I don't see enough of that in young adult, I think, but that's that's what I think young adult should be. And so when I realized that that was kind of the direction this book was going, I, I said, okay, this is a young adult book. And, you know, funny enough, when I first self-published these, uh, I marketed them as young adult. When Orbit republished them, they have classified them as adult, though I, I think one or two categories might still be in young adult in some places, uh, but I still consider them very young adult. And so <laughs> I'll often get, I, I will actually get some readers every once in a while being like, man, this really reads like a young adult book. And, and I'm like, yeah, there's, yeah, <laughs> there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's categorized as young adult in our library. So that's why I, I think it is a young adult story. So, and all the librarians love it. We just, we just keep can't get enough. <laughs> and that makes me so happy. I just want to <laughs> say I spent so much of my young life in libraries that, like, my my mother used to drop me and my sister off at, at the library and just leave us. And and we would we would entertain ourselves. We would we would. She would have to drag us out when she finally came back for us because because we'd have 
you know, stacks of books and we couldn't take them all out at once. So we'd be like, no, 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 no. Let me finish this one first. And we are a library podcast. And I was going to ask you how libraries have impacted your life. So you're, you're on the ball. <laughs> oh, that libraries have impacted my life an awful lot. I, <laughs> in fact, uh, not only did I spend a, a ton of time in libraries as a kid, at one point I worked as a library aide in my high school. It was fantastic. I had an extra, I had an extra period because I had skipped a class and, and they, they said, well, you have to choose a class for this period. And I went, can I help at the library? Be a good gig, especially in high school. <laughs> well, it was, you know, because after I, after I finished off, you know, reshelving books and stuff like that, I, I could sit down and read. Just <laughs> the dream right there. We are always finding new books just from that shelving process. We're like, oh, I didn't even know this was here. <laughs> oh, yeah. You always set aside, you know, while you're reshelving. You're like, oh, I didn't see this one. I think I'm just going to, you know what? I'll get that one. I'm just going to mm -hmm. put this over here. That doesn't go back on the shelf. Daily struggle. <laughs> I know. You've mentioned that you, you've got a, a nonfiction book that's coming out. You just released Small Miracles. Uh, how many story kernels or, or books do you juggle at a time? Oh my gosh, I have too many. I am seriously considering rewriting the paranormal romances, but those those would actually those would have to go under a different pen name because there are there are many things you can get away with under the same pen name, but uh, levels of steam not one of them. So <laughs> so I, I would have to publish those under a different pen name. So I I have all of those. I think I have like five of them that I could I could technically rewrite and uh, and spit polish. Uh, I do write the occasional nonfiction book when something comes up. Mostly it happens by the time I realize I've been giving the same advice to authors over and over. And then I, I go, you know what, I should just write this down in a book and hand the book to people from now on. That's how the blurb book got started. And that is how this recent book got started because I, I realized that I was constantly explaining to uh, other author friends, like, okay, here is a problem with your prose that made it hard to get through. Uh, and then I just realized I should just write this down. So I did. Other story ideas, you know, I, I still have a medieval fairy tale that I desperately want to write. And I even have an outline for it. And the problem, and, and, I, and I also have a friend who's going to help me with the history for it because I have all my history friends. But uh, the, the main problem with it is that at the end of the day, I, I keep realizing no one else is as interested in Benedictine monks as I am. So possibly that's going to have to wait for another day. It's still probably going to get written and I'll just self-publish it and throw it out there. But yeah, most people are not as into that. So <laughs> you never know. You never know. I mean, so I'm going to do fairy tale at monks. I'm going to do my level best to still make it funny and interesting. But it's just not the first thing that springs to mind when you're going, you know, obviously like um, Regency balls and romances and stuff, people will be like, oh, yeah, I'll eat that up. And then there's fairies. But when you go, you know, okay, so this is a funny story about the corruption of Benedictine monks, but also it has fairies. People go, hmm, I mean, I'd, maybe I'll try it, but. I mean, you say that, but I'm thinking like the canticle of Leibowitz is, is, I mean, at its heart, it's just monks dealing with history and post-apocalypse. I'm not and familiar the, with that one. Oh, that is that's a post-apocalyptic uh, like classic. I highly recommend it. But it kind of goes to like a you know the, this group of monks that are recovering lost history kind of stuff. <laughs> well, the uh, the you know the thing I find most most interesting about the Benedictine monks is that the, there was a period. Of course, they started they started as an order of monks that was supposed to take a vow of poverty. And then as time went on, they just found all of these technicalities and ways to get around it so that while they were technically they had still taken a vow of poverty, they were having feasts every other day and, you know, just living it up. And it's such a, a funny case study in how people indulge in cognitive dissonance over time that I I just found it was so it was very fairy logic <laughs> and so I, I just saw a connection there and I was like oh, I need to I need to write something about this I can see it working so yeah we'll stay tuned I'll keep an but eye out for obviously that one. <laughs> yeah obviously the the stuff that I am actively currently working on I have a book that I am co-writing with my husband which is called Echoes of the Imperium it is steampunk goblins fairies and fantasy. And 
it's unfortunately it has run into difficulties in the sense that one of our editors who is a very good editor and and i love her she is the editor for this book she's been having health issues and and it's been dragging out and so it's definitely taken longer than i would have liked to to get it out the door but i am hopeful crossing my fingers that this year we will manage it so we we have you know she's she's been getting the feedback trickling in so we we have stuff to work on and the the last bit of course is that i am working on some victorian fairy tales so i'm gonna jump in here because this was gonna be a question i popped in later but you know you brought up echoes of the imperium so what is it like writing with a partner uh, what is different in the process uh, the, the balancing load of of that style writing oh it's so much harder <laughs> so much harder. You would think that having a writing partner would make things faster, but actually it makes things much, much slower. And, um, you know, part of that happens during the the kind of negotiation between your writing styles and what you're good at. Because I am actually, I'm good at plotting. And my husband is good at action sequences and pithy dialogue and really rich descriptions. And in fact, his his rich descriptions sometimes get a little too rich. And so here, you know, what will happen is he'll write this this wonderful description of a setting and then I'll come in and I'll be like, OK, this is amazing, but it's too much. We need to just trim it down just a little bit. Um, and so the negotiation process can take some time. And, you know, it, there's also the fact that, uh, frankly, epic fantasy takes longer historical fantasy to me is almost cheating and I love it because whenever I have a question about the setting I just look it up <laughs> you know I don't have to come up with it I don't have to worry about I, I don't have to worry about whether it's consistent with stuff I've previously written because I have a literal history book which will tell me whether it's consistent or not and that's not the case with epic fantasy you really have to keep track of all of your world building and when you hit a question you have to answer that question and it can sometimes take you time to make it all fit together that way and so for me echoes of the imperium which i'm really happy with by the way i think it's turning out to be an amazing book but it is doubly difficult for me between the fact that it is an epic fantasy and the fact that uh my husband and i have to do the the writing negotiation I do think the book is far stronger for it. I, I think we really complement each other, but it it takes time. For jumping back to the Regency fairy tale series, each of them can kind of be read as a standalone, even though they're all in the same universe. Did you have a favorite one right while writing um, out of the three? Oh gosh, that's really hard to say. That's like asking me to pick my favorite cat. <laughs> um, I, I loved them all for different reasons. I would say very barely 10,000 Stitches is probably my favorite because I don't often see servants given a leading role in Regency fiction or in any fiction, really. I don't often see servants given a point of view. And I really wanted to lean into that. And I did a lot of research into how servants lived during during several eras, but specifically during the Regency era. And it was awful. <laughs> it's really uh, amazing how much people were allowed to get away with with regard to servants. And I actually had to tone it down quite a bit for 10,000 Stitches because the reality was just so miserable that it would have been such a downer. <laughs> And it probably would have gotten into not safe for work territory because there was sexual assault and there was, you know, beating servants and there was, you know, it was just awful. So I feel like there were a lot of things in 10,000 Stitches that I found both very compelling and not touched on often enough. And so that that was definitely one that I, I had, a I, I think, a bit more fun with. Than, than the other two, but I still loved them all. And there was almost, even though it's not in the same era, uh, like almost like a Downton Abbey with the way, uh, since we're so familiar with that, um, 
for 10,000 stitches, kind of parallel that a little bit with the, the servant class and the upper class? Yeah, the, um, the Regency era, I believe, I would have to check my notes again, but I believe the Regency era was the era where we started having the idea that servants should not be seen. And so it was around the time when architecture started changing to keep them out of sight. And that's when you get the things like, uh, I actually, you know what, I can't say this word, the baize door, I believe it is, um, the, the door that leads to the servants' area and the servants' passageways and the idea of servants living and sleeping underground, which is so much worse than it sounds because you don't get any sunlight and that can really mess with your head uh, and your and your health. It, it can. Uh, if you have no sunlight, you're, you're vitamin D deprived and depression starts setting in. And there's just so much about it that was so bad. And uh, so Regency era really was the turning point there. And so it's an interesting place to to start talking about those ideas regarding servants and the impact that they had. And they definitely served to dehumanize servants even more because when you don't see them very often, you forget about them. They're not there. They're not people. They don't take up any space in your head. When I started writing this question, it was a few weeks ago. So as gamers, we were dealing with something a few weeks ago uh, with the uh, OGL Oh, I have been keeping up with that. You'd better believe it. <laughs> so what goes into uh, to the business of self-publishing? How is it different from that, that indie, indie publishing versus the traditional and, and where you have to deal with corporate control and exploitation? And are there bonuses or hindrances to both? So I have found advantages to both sides uh, and I have found drawbacks to both sides. And I really think the sweet spot is to be a hybrid author because on the one hand, it's very hard to get indie books into brick and mortar bookstores. They, they really don't want to take that risk. And I understand that because they don't know what quality the book is. And so basically, if the only way that an indie book is going to make it into a brick and mortar store is if an employee has already read and vetted it and convinced people that it's okay to put on the shelves. And we do kind of use TradPub as shorthand for this has a minimum level of editing. And, you know, for better or worse, that's just how it is. And so if you really want to have a presence in bookstores, you've got to be traditionally publishing something. And that's a whole untapped market that you just can't get to as an indie author. And uh, on the flip side, indie authors, uh, I'm going to be honest, they make more money. Uh, that may surprise a lot of people, but because you're getting a, a bigger direct cut of your sales, you uh, if you are any good at marketing, and that's a big if, you know, if you can market your stuff, you're making more money per book. Now, my experience with trad has been different than I would say a lot of people's because I self-published these novels first, and then when they were doing very well, I had an agent and an editor both approach me kind of within the same week, two week period and say, hey, you know, there's an interest in republishing these traditionally. Uh, is that something that you want to pursue? And at the time, I I already knew, having chatted with many of my author friends who, who are hybrid or who had traditional experience, I, I knew what the process involved. I, I knew the potential drawbacks and everything. And so I went in very informed. And I think that's kind of the big danger for people who, who publish traditionally is that if they go in with the wrong expectations, that's, that's going to be the letdown. But for me, I said, you know, Amazon is a huge part of the book market. And it's very true that you cannot really make enough money to survive unless you are on Amazon. And an interesting thing about that is that I remember other megalithic technology corporations that we thought would never go under. And they did. And I thought to myself, if Amazon ever dies, what am I going to do? <laughs> and the answer was, I think I'd better have, you know, a good half of my books traditionally published 
just so that if something happens, all of my eggs are not in one basket. And so that is that was kind of the the train of thought uh, for me of why I said yes and and pursued it. And Orbit uh, obviously republished these books, and for the most part, they left them alone uh, because they were already making money. And so they said, you know, we're going to spiff up the covers a little bit. We're going to give them an, uh, a quick edit pass. Uh, but otherwise, you know, other than a, a few tweaks, uh, we're going to we're just going to republish them. And that seems to have, you know, mainly worked out. My copy editor did editor did steal my Oxford commas, which I am. Uh, we had a discussion about. But, you know, I understand. She was very nice about it. I personally have uh, strongly disagree with the idea. But, well, there's your corporate control right there. <laughs> Now, bouncing back to Orbit, I just discovered their augmented reality covers, which Half a Soul has an augmented reality cover where, for those listening, if you have Google Lens app on your phone, you hover the phone um, with the image search over the cover, and then the cover kind of comes to life. So Half a Soul, the scissors become animated and drop down from the top. What was it like to have a truly magical cover? Um, <laughs> so you would think as a programmer, uh, which I am, that I would know how to make this work and I do not, and I have not tried. Uh, and so I, it was really cool. They did send me the animation and I got to look at it, but I have not, I feel so ashamed to say this, but I have not made it work myself. <laughs> I think it's not just you. Cause like, I'll be like, oh, that's an animated cover. Cause it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the orbit and uh, there was like a bookstagrammer that just asked, like, I've been doing a deep dive. I can't get it to work. But yeah, I think it's just a, it's a Google app. And then you go to the camera function on the Google app and you just hover above the book and then it recognizes it and then it does the animation. So if yeah. I was there, I would show you. I, I, <laughs> I mean, like I said, I have gotten to see it. I think it's really neat. It's um, cool. It's, it's super neat. But I uh, I play a little video on my computer for it. <laughs> that works too. We like to have some fun. And we are a, a PG podcast because Sarah won't let me say certain words here. <laughs> so we play a game here that you might know is under a different name, but we call it Kiss, Mary Ditch. Ah, okay. And what I'm going to do is I've got four different categories that I've hidden behind what I consider myself to be very clever, uh, you know, little hints at what might be inside those categories, but I'm going to give you four categories to choose from. And then once you pick your category, I will give you three things that you will like, love, and one to get rid of. Okay. So the categories you can choose from are, is this the real life or just fruit soda oceans, technology incognito, the seasons drag on, and I just want to run. Uh, technology incognito. So we have talked about how you have some fantasy writings, you're working in a steampunk settings, and you mentioned there's some paranormal romance out there. So I'm going to make you choose between fantasy, modern, and steampunk gadgets. So you have to choose from these three items, cell phone, magic wand, and a jetpack. It's like, love, get rid of. Okay, okay. I will say... I love the cell phone because as a plotter, I can't tell you how many times the difference in a modern setting is, oh, wait, they have a cell phone. <laughs> it, it resolves so many plot elements. And uh, I feel like uh, I, would be, uh, I would be a fool to ignore that. Magic wand, I like. I don't know uh, how dangerous it might be as a programmer. You know, one of my main concerns is always like, you know, if I got it wrong, what would it do? How easy is it to operate? Uh, and then I think the, uh, you know, in a similar vein, I'd have to ditch the jetpack because I'm like, oh boy, user error there could be catastrophic. Uh, I don't really want to blow myself up or fall from a, a very, very tall height. <laughs> um, just to kind of give you an idea of what you missed out on. Is this real life or just fruits, soda, oceans? You would have had to choose fantasy worlds. <laughs> Let's see here. Seasons drag on. You would have died to uh, rate Dragonlance characters. Oh, and... I remember Dragonlance. Oh, man. 
and I just want to run, you would have had to help me pick the next game I was running for the family. Oh. And my next question is, what are you currently reading slash watching? Oh, I am not reading anything. And this is because I, um, lots of authors go through this. I call it author guilt. And that is that when you kind of, you really want to read, but then you're like, oh, I should be writing. <laughs> so it, it can read, it can lead to a reading slump when you, you just feel too guilty to read. <laughs> but, but I can tell you what's on my list to read. And that is, mm -hmm. um, Small Miracles is part of the Spiffbo competition. It's called a self-published fantasy blog off. And it's made um, finalist along with nine other entries. And so all nine of those other entries are basically right next on my reading list. They they all look fantastic and I'm really excited about them. Uh, there are two Regency fantasies on that list this year, which oh, cool. was surprising because Spiffbo, you know, um, I would say in the last few years, Last year they had some romancy, but before that it was it was very much epic fantasy and so on. And so this year we had a, a whole spate of cozy fantasies that made it onto the the list. And uh, like I said, I think that's that's partially just people are in that kind of mood right now. And uh, so I have um, uh, gosh, some of the titles are very long, and I'm trying to remember exactly what they are. There was um, Miss Percy's Pocket Guide to the Care and Feeding of British Dragons by Quinby Olson, which I'm very excited about because uh, the main character is a middle-aged kind of spinster. And and I'm like, that's so my vibe. I'm, I love characters that are a little bit, you know, away from the glamorous standard and feel more real. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. There's Scales and Sensibility by Stephanie Burgess, uh, which also looks like uh, my sort of story. And then there is one called, the series is called Cruel Gods. And I think the, the name of the book is The Thirteenth Hour. And I'm very excited about that because the, the gist of the story is something uh, to do with basically gods that are, well, they're cruel. They're, they're not nice gods. And that opens up a lot of great philosophical questions. And I actually, I, the, the book I spent 10 years trying to write and world build was actually a book that critiqued the concept of the divine right of kings by saying okay what if what if a bunch of gods chose some kings and they chose some bad ones the gods are real they did choose those kings that is unmistakable but the kings are terrible what do you do and so this feels like it's kind of in that vein and so i'm very excited to read it because that's kind of one of my 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 pet themes right there that I love. Um, so that is the books that are on my TBR. And there are there are other Spiffbo finalists that I am still excited about, but I, I can't remember them off the top of my head. The things that I've been watching are Andor, easily my favorite series, not just of last year, but possibly of all time. It was so good. I loved it. My husband and I, we we were so enthralled with Andor that it was the, the night before, you know, Tuesday evening, we would be like, it's Andor Eve. <laughs> and every once in a while, he'd be like, should we just stay up and watch it when it drops? <laughs> but um, oh. and then most recently, I finally got around to watching Knives Out and Glass Onion, both of which I thought were brilliant. But of course, that should surprise no one. They're right up my my alley as far as class critique. I I just I loved them, Glass Onion in particular because obviously I work I worked in tech and that jived with so many of my experiences. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I know that character. Yep, no, I've met him. He has no idea what he's doing, and everybody else thinks he does. <laughs> Oh, it was really fun to watch. It was just a fun evening. Yeah, no. And I, I think uh, actually I referenced Glass Onion in the book, the nonfiction book I'm about to put out because it it, it used techniques very well mm -hmm. uh, for clarity. Uh, if you mm -hmm. watch Glass Onion with an eye for clarity, it is basically flawless. Not only does the parlor scene go back to remind you of clues that you might have missed, but it also goes back to remind you of motifs that you might have missed and re-explains them. 
And that's actually something that I think more authors should do. You don't just want to re-explain the physical, you know, murder mystery clues. You also want to be like, hey, do you remember that conversation at the very beginning of the book that might impact the theme that we're talking about right now? Here's a, the exact line from that conversation that you might want to remember because I'm not going to make you go all the way back to that conversation and try to find it just so that you can kind of bring yourself back up to date, which I think is, again, it's one of those things that will annoy certain readers, but other readers will be like, oh, thank God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't I don't have to go flipping back, which I, I yeah. think is a, a worthy reason to uh, to add it in. So I Glass agree. Onion did that very, very well. I just want to ask a couple rapid fire questions here real quick. Sword or sorcery? Mm, sorcery. Something you wish you had written. Oh, boy. The We Free Men by Terry Pratchett. Uh, do you correct people's grammar? Depends on the context. LARP or tabletop? <gasps> I can't answer that. I. Oh. Um, RPG of choice. Uh, Pathfinder First Edition. <laughs> um, uh, movie that you enjoy quoting the most? Ooh, uh, The Gamers. Punchline to your favorite joke. Um, no, that I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. Uh, if I if I wanted a joke, I would just go over to my husband and be like, "Give me a pun," and he would. That's his primary skill set in this household is making puns. <laughs> He's very good at it. You know, French is his first language, and it doesn't matter. He's still fantastic at English puns. I don't know how he does it. You know, certain people it just transcends languages. Mm-hmm. Strangest thing in your search history? Ooh, oh, that's hard. Uh, there are a lot of strange things in my search history. No, I was about to say like things about poison, but I'm like, no, every writer does that. I would, I would say things about uh, British folk magic, probably. So uh, there's a whole sub uh, subset of traditional English folk magic that's called uh, regrettably negromancy, and that is everything to do with what the uh, with what English magicians believed they could do by summoning the dead. And there's a lot of very gruesome stuff in there that I did not include in any of my books because it was that bad. Uh, but I did uh, lots and lots of searches uh, for that sort of thing. And my last question is, what is a typical writing day like for you? When I first wake up, I am useless. So one of my hus one of the jobs my husband has taken it upon himself to do is to make sure there is a cup of coffee when I wake up because otherwise I wander around going, what am I doing? What was I doing? Right, I was trying to make coffee. Uh, and he at some point he was just like, here, I'm going to get this jump started for you. Here's the coffee and then you can go, go about your day. So I'll have my coffee. I'll have a, a snack, sit down, go through my emails and some of my, my other outstanding kind of bureau bureaucracy stuff uh and then later in the day my brain tends to be in a better frame for writing uh so i'll sit down and depending where i'm at a lot of times what i'll do is i'll come up with a concept for a book and then i will sit down and develop it out into a very loose main plot and then i will write the first chapter in order to kind of pin down and solidify stuff uh, and then I'll go back and edit up the outline with that in mind, because a lot of times things change when I do that. So once I get through the first chapter, I re-edit the outline, and then I write the blurb. Uh, and then I just go chronologically, and I see how far I can get at any given time. My brain just doesn't work on skipping around. I can't, I can't do that. I, I feel like every scene builds on the previous scene, and so I need, really need to know how things fell out exactly before I can do the other scenes. So an average writing day for me would probably be, mm, I want to say like a thousand to 2000 words, a really good writing day. I've done 10,000 before. It just really depends because if I, if I hit my stride, I'm like, okay, I don't want to stop. I'm just going to keep going until I, until I burn out. And then generally speaking, I need a day to recover after that. <laughs> I bet. That's impressive. <laughs> uh, which is not to say that I write every day. I do not. I probably should. I don't. Breaks I, are needed too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I spend 
I obviously, uh, I spend whole days preparing for the games I'm running as well. So, you know, that's kind of writing, but it's not writing I get to publish. Mm -hmm. You have passion yet. projects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we'll say yet on that one. <laughs> well, I can't, um, you know, a, a lot of it is very specific to the Pathfinder setting. And so I would really need to like, I would need to actually like license out the Pathfinder setting for that. And a lot of my spins on the Pathfinder setting are not canonical. So uh, unlikely, let's just say it's unlikely. Uh, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd be like, you know, it's one thing to to go to Paizo and be like, hey, I'd like to write a book in your setting. And it's another thing entirely to be like, hey, I want to write a book in your setting, except I'm going to change a lot of things about it. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, we'll give you that. But, you know, <laughs> so, so as we kind of wrap up here, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I mean, we've covered so much ground. Uh, I will just say that uh, I'm very excited about the books in the pipeline. I really hope we can get Echoes out this year because it's just turning into such a good book. And I I am very excited about the Victorian fairy tales. I I am interested to to you know go just just a shade darker without losing the whimsy. And um, I think people are really going to enjoy some of the characters that I've got lined up. I'm super excited. <laughs> I'm super excited. I love Victorian era already. So Gothics uh, is my favorite. I love anything Gothic. If you have right, a crazy exactly. lady in the attic, got fire. Oh, yes. I have a lady in the attic. Don't worry. <laughs> there is there is a lady in the attic. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Making Sarah's day over here. No, thank you um, again for joining us. I yeah, really appreciate thank you. it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Olivia, for joining us on Unstacked. Half a Soul, 10,000 Stitches, and Long Shadow are available in the library collection for checkout. They can also be purchased to your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out her website, oliviaatwater.com. That's O-L-I-V-I-A-A-T-W-A-T-E-R.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.